0: something that I think, I hope you notice about Grace Baptist Church. We want to be a word-centered ministry, not entertainment-driven, not even style-driven. We want to be driven by the text of Scripture, the words of God. It's interesting that that phrase, I don't know if you caught it, my favorite phrase from that song is, your buried body began to breathe. What a tremendous image of Christ. Returning to life. What an amazing picture as we celebrate Easter here in the coming weeks. Second thing I want you to remember as you think about singing, that one of the aspects here at Grace that we are greatly committed to, that I think Scripture bears out, is that congregational singing is essential to the body of Christ. When you look at the actual elements in the New Testament that we are commanded to do in worship, they're very, 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 very few. But one of them is congregational singing. And as Pastor West said, hey, if you make a mistake, just make it loud. And I remember, I put it in a vernacular I understand a little bit better. My old football coach said it this way. If you hit the wrong guy, hit him really hard. Same principle, okay? Just do it with full gusto. If you're visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. We are so thankful to have you here with us today. If this is your very first time at Grace We invite you to take the QR code that is printed on the card in front of you in the pew, and you can scan that with your smartphone, and that will take you to a very uh, brief uh, couple of questions that you can answer for us, and then that will also give us the opportunity to follow up with you. If you have any questions about our ministry, we'd love to answer those. You can also contact us through our website, gracenc.org. There's a contact button there. You can find us that way. And many of your questions, by the way, about our ministry can, in fact, be maybe even answered for you on the website. In this day and age, the culture in which we live, if you're visiting for the first time, you probably have already been on our website, Uh, but we would invite you to go back and take another look at that and get some of your other questions answered. I would like for you to find with me the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be wrapping up our study on this book. We have not gone passage by passage through it. We've kind of have gone theme by theme through it. And this week and next, we'll be finishing our study on this book. And I want to begin by reading the text this morning that we're going to be looking at the next couple of weeks. And I want to warn you, we are literally going to look at two words this morning. Two words. But I want you to read the overall text before we dive into these two very important words that I want to talk to you about this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. We know that Solomon has had much to say about his pursuits in life, and he's come to the repeatedly same conclusion that life when lived apart from God is all vanity. So, here's what he says. As a good writer does, he's now bringing all of his arguments to a close, and he says this. He says, the end of the matter. How can we conclude this study? After all that has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The two words we're going to study this morning is are fear God. Now, when I say the word fear, we probably all have some basic level understanding of what that word means. I always use this as an illustration over we talk about fear. If you were to Google right now the top 10 things that people find fearful, usually on every one of those lists, either number, I've always seen it as number one, but always in the top five, top five is the fear of public speaking. I don't understand that at all. I have no concept of that fear. In fact, to me, the bigger the group, the better, the more relaxed I am. Okay, that's upside down to most people. But there are things that make me far more afraid than public speaking. Heights, more particularly ladders, would be one of those things. I have a sense of fear. We also understand that what we fear in many ways, in many regards, actually controls your life. And every time I mention in any sermon the fear of God, that you should fear God, inevitably I get an email or a text or a phone call or something to say, wait a minute, what do you mean fear God? I thought we weren't supposed to be fearful of God. It says that love casts out all fear, doesn't it? Then why does Solomon say fear God? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that. I want you also to understand this principle that as Christians, we often lose our focus and sense of purpose in life. And it's often due to the fact that we have lost a very essential type of fear, fear of God. In fact, a few years ago, and I remember reading this article when it first came out, this study, when it came out just a couple of years ago, and it really has to do with the idea of the will of God, which we've been talking about, but it also talks to the issue of our purpose in life. And I hear people, I read business books all the time, and find your purpose, find your life purpose. Well, Barna Group, which is a group that does all kinds of research and understand that they sometimes define terms a little bit differently than maybe we would, and I'll highlight one for you here in a moment. But according to this study, that most Christians, most people who claim to know Christ as their savior, cannot define their purpose in life. In fact, only 11% of practicing Christians, those that go to church at least once a month. Okay? So, admittedly, a little bit of a generic use of the word, but that they when they were surveys that surveyed only 11% could say that they could define their purpose in life. This research found that only 29% of evangelical Christians, okay, again, the word Christian there can be used very generically, but evangelical Christians, which could even be used a little bit broader than we might use it, only 29% of them said that they could define their purpose in life. I would suggest to you That if you are struggling with this issue, well, what's my purpose in life? That just like the will of God has become very fuzzy in Christian conversation, that our purpose in life has also become very confusing. And I would argue that the purpose of the Christian life is defined for us very simply in passages like 1 Corinthians 10 31, that we do all for the glory of God. That is your purpose. And when we lose the fear of God, our purpose, becomes extremely muddled. It's interesting. There's a a book that I have read a couple of times, actually. It's a book by the title of Management by the Proverbs, and I've read the book probably five or six times through the years. And in this book, they tell the story of a company you might have heard of, a company called Chick-fil-A. Has anybody ever heard of that company? I know this about Chick-fil-A, when I ride by it, um, the, the cars is always wrapped around the building, so it's a very popular restaurant, obviously. But Truett Cathy said this. He said, to, to, he said, the purpose of Chick-fil-A, why does it exist? What is its purpose? To glorify God. By being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. I'd say they've lived their purpose. Now let's take this statement and apply it to you. God's will for your life is that you bring glory to Him and fear Him and bring glory to His name by doing fill in the blank that God's will to fear Him and God's will to glorify Him can be fulfilled in many different vocations, in many different pursuits in life. We've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. But now Solomon, as he brings this book to a close, and he's trying to get us to understand how do we keep from living this vain existence, this existence that doesn't seem to amount to anything. It's just vanity, as he says throughout this book. How do we do that? Well, he gives us a very simple conclusion. It's not hard. And we're just going to look at the first part this morning. Number one, you are to fear God. Now, fear is arguably the strongest of all human emotions. Sometimes fear cripples us when we have fear, or sometimes fear just startles us. Maybe you're in the house, this has probably happened to you, it happens to us in our house, when you don't realize there's somebody home or that somebody's upstairs and you come around a corner and there's somebody standing right there and you jump. There's this moment of, whoa, you scared me. I didn't know you were there. Okay, we understand that. That's that's fear. We also understand there is a fear of the unknown. We fear things like dying. We fear many different things about life. We also understand that we live in a culture that is obsessed with the idea of fear. Our culture feeds on fear. The fear of the pandemic, the fear created by conspiracy theories and politicians and even religious leaders. Just take the overly dramatic weather reports and the constant barrage of sensationalized news stories. They feed the frenzy of fear. Oh, what's going to happen? I mean, fear, like sex, it sells. That's why they do it. That's why they keep everybody worked up. So fear God? Why would I want to live my life worked up all the time and nervous and biting my fingernails? Why would Solomon say, fear God? Well, it might be that while we understand the concept of fear, we don't fully comprehend what Solomon is telling us here in this very simple verse, in this very simple commandment to fear God. Again, we understand that when we are exposed to fear, there is a physiological response. Our heart heart rate increases. We breathe faster. We tremble. We get weak in the knees. We get goosebumps. We get chills. There is this physical response to fear as well. So let's try to understand how do we understand Solomon's commandment to fear God? Because if we're honest, in many ways, this commandment is confusing. And in other ways, this commandment seems amazingly contradictory. Let me, get, let me illustrate it for you. We are told throughout the Bible that we are not to fear. Repeatedly. Let me give you some examples. By the way, if you search fear of God... I have, a, I have a pretty fancy, I guess, Bible program I've been using for 20-some years. If you search fear of God, we could be here until dinner time reading verses that deal with this issue. So, I want to read just a sampling of some of these verses. And the Bible tells us at times we are not to fear. Listen to a few of them. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and it said, fear not, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Exodus chapter 14, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have to only be silent. Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, when Joshua and Caleb came back from spying out the land, this is what they said, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for you. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Don't be afraid. Jeremiah 8, 1, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Jeremiah forty six twenty eight. fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear God and keep His commandments? What is Solomon saying? Well, throughout Scripture, in many places, we are commanded to fear. Let me give you some examples of this. Exodus chapter 20, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. There's it. Don't fear, but be afraid. That's interesting that you might not sin, Moses said. I love Leviticus twenty-five, seventeen. You shall not wrong one another. Don't mistreat one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 31 says in that text that they will hear and learn, talking about their children, they will hear and learn the fear of the Lord your God. Job 1 verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Joseph, or Job rather, and there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Psalm 33 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Psalm eighty six eleven, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord uh, on one, let's try that again, in the fear of the Lord, one has a strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The proverb says, and I, could, I got many more. I won't read them all. So we have, we have this, even in some of the verses, right? Be afraid of God, but don't be afraid. What do we do with this? Well, let me throw another little uh, part into this discussion that I think is very, very telling and very interesting. I want to read for you Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11 is a prophetic verse. It's a prophetic section. Isaiah is looking forward to the time of the coming Messiah. The Messiah, as we know, was fulfilled in Christ. He was born of a virgin. We're going to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection at Easter in just a couple of weeks. But Isaiah, generations before the coming Messiah, is looking ahead to this coming one that is going to save people from their sin. And I want you to listen to Isaiah's description of the coming Messiah. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from the lineage of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why would the Messiah need that? And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge. The last verse of that section, righteousness shall be his belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. So even the promised Messiah in his sinlessness, perfect holiness, was not to reject the idea of fearing the Lord. Okay, so we get this sort of contradictory picture in the Old Testament, so let's dig a little bit deeper and try to understand some of the words, the Hebrew words, that English writers are trying to put into English for us as English speaking people to understand what this, is, what this is talking about. Now, there are, we're going to look at two primary Old Testament words. There are more than that that can be translated as fear, but two primary ones that I want us to look at this morning— And I want you to also keep this in mind. I'll illustrate this. These words can be used, I'm going to use these couple of words right now. We'll explain it a little bit more particularly in a minute. They can be used positively or negatively. It's kind of like, I've been quoting the verse recently of First um, Timothy 3.1, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. The second word, that's the King James translation. The second word, uh, desire, in the, in the King James ESV, translates the first one as aspire, a, a if you're curious. But the second one there in the King James, the word um, desires is actually the word epithumia, which is often translated negatively as lust after. Okay, so like in any other word, they can be used positively or they can be used negatively. And very simply, you could say it this way. It depends on the object, in the word of epimathea, of my desire. It's either holy or it's not. It's either righteous or it isn't. And the word fear is the same. It's either righteous fear or it's sinful fear, depending on the object of that fear. So let me give you a couple of these words. And I think it, for the kids, this is on your, on your study sheet there its first one is Yahweh, not Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. This is the most common word, Hebrew word, used for fear. It's the word that Solomon actually uses in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. And let me just give you some words, English words, that would define this Hebrew word for us. Fear would be one, which is the one we're talking about. Revere, to be dreadful, to stand in awe of something, to reverence, to honor, to respect. To cause astonishment and awe, the inspired reverence or godly fear uh, or awe. Now, let me give you a, a negative illustration of this. And this, okay, if, if you fell asleep a little bit on the Hebrew, come back to me for a minute because I want this is this is the essential part that I want you to understand this morning. Here is a negative use of this word, Yahweh, not Yahweh, Yahweh. Listen, negative use. Genesis three ten. And he said. He being Adam. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, we understand where we are in history of salvation here, that Adam and Eve have just sinned against God and God is now confronting their sin. And notice Adam's response I heard you in the garden, and I was filled with fear. I was afraid. And what did Adam do? He ran, he hid. In his shame, he wanted nothing to do with God. He wanted to be as far away from God as he possibly could get because, in his mind, in his version or vision of God, he thought God was going to destroy him. So, what did he do? He ran. He was afraid. He was a coward. You could say it that way. Now, that's a harsh statement. I don't know how I would have responded if I was in that situation. But it is a negative use of this word Yahweh. Now, listen to a positive use of this word. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His steadfast love. Jeremiah 10, verse 7. I love this one. Jeremiah 10, verse 7 starts with a question who would not fear you O king of nations for this is your due for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is no one like you no one you are unparalleled in your magnificence you are a being beyond our understanding who wouldn't fear you Now, here's a second Hebrew word. And in this one, there's a little bit of a distinction. That's why I'm bringing it to your attention. It's the word pakad. It means, likewise, to fear, to tremble, to revere, to dread, to be in awe. But this Hebrew word carries an interesting distinction with it. It carries the physical response of being overwhelmed, weak-need, trembling, and being physically incapacitated. Negative use of this word, pacad, Isaiah 33:14, the sinners, those who did not believe in God, those who didn't have faith in God, the sinners in Zion were afraid. Listen to the next word trembling. He has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us dwell with everlasting burnings? Hear their questions. When they thought about God, they were afraid, they were trembling, and they started asking these questions. Who can stand before Him? I better do what? I better run. I better get away. I better hide. I'm shameful. I better get away from God because God is going to hold me accountable for my godless state. And so they're, they're asking these questions. Who can stand before you? They were afraid and trembling. Isaiah 33 verse 9, positive use of this word peccad. And this city shall be a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who hear of all the good that I do for them. This is God talking. They shall fear peccad and tremble. Because of all, why? Because I'm a terrible, awful God and he's gonna squash me. No, 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 no. Because of all the good and the prosperity, I will provide for it. This kind of fear draws me to God. I run to him. It's not a fear that. I am running the other direction. This is fear that I am trembling before a holy, righteous God who is unparalleled uh, compared to anyone else. And rather than running in fear away from God, this fear leaves me trembling in my soul, but it draws me to God. And we'll illustrate that a little bit more in the close. So let's summarize all this to say it this way. There's more than one type of fear, isn't there? We all understand that God has given to us A kind of anatomical sense of fear, a physiological sense of fear. This kind of fear means that I don't stick my hand into a flame. You might do that once, but you won't do it twice. This kind of fear means that I won't jump off a skyscraper because there is a sense of fear that God has given to me for my own self-protection. Okay, The biblical writers aren't really talking about that kind of fear. They're talking about one and uh, the two of the other uh, types of fear, one is sinful fear. And this is fear that I define it this way: false evaluation appearing real. This is when I fear something that I shouldn't be afraid of. This means I dread God, it scares me. It drives me away from my creator, just as it did Adam in Genesis chapter 3:10. I was afraid, so I ran and I hid. Proverbs 29, 25 tells us this, the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man, the object of my fear, when it is man, it controls my life. It destroys my life. It's a snare for me, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, at some level, this comes back to my theology about who God is. If God is a tyrant and God is simply out to make my life miserable and to squash me for every little mistake that I make in this life, then I am going to run the other way. This type of fear drives me to a ritualistic kind of living, a self-effort trying to appease this angry and demanding God. It is a life that is wrapped up in the idea of penance and it pulls me away from God. This is sinful fear. This is the fear we saw when Joshua and Caleb said, don't be afraid of the people of the land, God has given it to you. And they turned around and they said, no way, that's sinful fear. Now, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call this third form of fear, obedient fear. This type of fear runs to God. It seeks shelter in God. Deuteronomy 10:20, "You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Don't run, hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear." Psalm 40, verse three. He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear. And run the other way? No they will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 66, verse 16, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you all that He has done for my soul. This type of fear understands that our Heavenly Father is one of shelter, refuge, love, and security. Yes, it accepts the boundaries that God has put around our lives for our protection, but this type of fear drives us to our knees in humble submission to God's Word. So rather than trying to earn God's love through our works of righteousness, we are simply amazed by His grace, mercy, long-suffering, and unmerited redemption. We are not trying to take advantage of it. We are simply amazed by it. We are standing in awe of it. Now, for me, we wrestle with this concept of fearing God, and, and I do this, and we all do this, I'm saying it's wrong to do it, but we use words like, well, what Paul, what, what someone is talking about here is just reverencing God. And, and I personally have made a personal agreement with myself, I only use the word awesome to refer to God. I don't use it in any other context. Only God is one who inspires all in someone. But in reality, the strongest word that we really can use that Solomon is trying to get us to understand is the word fear, as long as it is understood that the context is a loving, righteous, holy God that we are simply amazed by that we are recognizing that he is truly unparalleled. This, by the way, is the kind of fear of God that we see in Moses in chapter uh, 3 of Exodus, that when God called him out of the burning bush and he said, "'Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for this place on which you are standing is holy ground.'" Or Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6, when he had this uh, vision of the angel saying, holy, 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 and he said, woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. I particularly like Nehemiah 1, verse eleven. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So, it is this magnificence of God, his unparalleled magnificence, that brings me to fear him. Let me illustrate it this way. This past summer, um, I think it was this past summer, maybe two years ago. I have a very bad sense of time. I was out, we were going to grill outside. And so I was prepping the grill, turning the propane on. You probably know where this story is going and got distracted. I went back inside. I'd forgotten something or whatever and came back out. The propane was running. And I took the match and I lit it and things did not go well for me. Okay. It kicked back a burst of flame that came at me. It singed off my, I don't have many eyebrows anyway, but they were gone. My hand was just, my arm was burned and all the hair was burned off, whatever. And I, I mean, I walked inside like physically, physically shaking. I was afraid. And I ran to the mirror to make sure that my face wasn't burned or my arms weren't burned. And so there was this sense of trembling. I had this response of fear. Michelle's like, what happened? And I told her what I just told you. Man, I ran away from that gas grill as fast as I could get away. Why? Because that's dangerous. That's going to hurt me. It's going to harm me. And if I view God that way, I'm running the other direction, Adam, in Genesis chapter 3. No, God, I heard you. I am out of here because I'm afraid. Now, let me take you to my wedding day. I remember it very well. I remember standing at the front of that auditorium waiting for my wife to come down the center aisle. And I remember the moment I saw her. I was afraid. My knees started to shake My voice started to quiver. If you ever watch the video, you can't hear either one of us because we couldn't even talk. I was afraid in this sense. I was afraid that I would fail as her husband. But more particularly, I was afraid because I understood the magnitude of the commitment that I was making with my wife. My physical response to almost getting my face burned off by a gas grill and standing on my wedding day, they looked physiologically very much the same. However, the gas grill made me run. My fear of that moment understanding the magnitude of my marital commitment drew me to my wife because I love her it was love it was fear it was this emotion it was this sense in which i understand what i'm doing here is is a very important thing in my life arguably the most important decision I'm ever going to make. There was an aspect of fear. That is the picture, albeit an imperfect one, of this idea of fear. When Solomon says, fear God, he's talking about tremble in your soul. Be weak in the knees and fall humbly before God and worship Him and love Him and appreciate Him and fear Him and, oh, by the way, next week, and keep His commandments. Why? this is the whole duty of man. This is why you were created. This is why you're here. This is your purpose. This is liberating. It's how I live my life, how we go through this daily life that we experience. Now, here's the problem. Here's what happens when we don't fear God. Let me give you three very quick results of when we don't fear God. And they are collective results for us as a culture. Unfortunately, increasingly, these also apply to churches, to believers. You see, when I don't fear God, the first result is that sinful lifestyles are not only accepted, they eventually become celebrated. We see that in our culture, don't we? Things that God says are clearly sinful, our culture embraces them, celebrates them, promotes them, and shames you when you hold to a biblical standard of what God has said, particularly in the area area of marriage and sexuality. God has defined what is right and wrong in these regards. Fear God and keep His commandments, not yours, not the culture's. The problem is when we lose our fear of God, morality will always slide, and moral confusion will always result. Now, our cultural understanding is they would like to completely disregard God. They're like the sinners in the one text that I read to you, that they're ungodly. They are just simply not even considering God. Reject him. Put him away. Get him out of the public eye. Don't talk about him. And if you say anything biblical, it's just hate speech. You're not even allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that marriage is defined between a man and a woman. That makes you a hater. It makes you someone who should be shut down and not listened to. By the way, I don't personally believe that the pulpit is a place for a political speech every Sunday. I don't do that. I don't believe that's correct. However, we have to understand that the Equality Act that is going on in our country right now will greatly limit, if not take away, our freedom of religion. And we better understand the magnitude of this legislation that our country that is rejecting God does not fear God once God completely out of the public sphere and doesn't want any mention of God will greatly, potentially take away and destroy the liberties of freedom religion that this constitution of our government guarantees to simply promote the liberties of a very, very small percentage of people. But that's what a culture does. But that's what you do too when you don't fear God. You excuse it. You limit your sin. You make excuses for your sin. You just cultivate it. You live in it. You accept it. And eventually, it's just the way that I am. And unfortunately, the church is not terribly far behind the culture at large. Secondly, interestingly enough, when we don't fear God, we become very anxious people. Now, that may seem odd to you, but remember fear is based on something specific. Someone scares you, a gas grill blows up in your face. But anxiety is just sort of this toxin that lingers in the air. It's just always present, and it's just looking for the next thing to be worked up about, to be anxious about, to be worried. That, by the way, leads to sinful fear, to sinful worry. As a culture, we have plenty of fear. We know that, as I mentioned, news articles and others sell, promote fear. We as Americans have to face the fact that throwing God out of our lives like He was the problem is simply fanning the flame of more and more anxiety. Look around our culture. Are people happier today because we've gotten God out of the conversation? I don't think so. Because, see, if I'm not fearing God and I'm not reverencing God and I'm not trembling before Him, then all these other things just take on a life of their own and I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm upset and I'm mad and I'm angry and, and all worked up about everything. But it's faith that grows in the fertile soil of fearing the Lord. Anxiety grows in the toxin of, of doubt. John Calvin said it this way He said, The knowledge of God set forth for us in Scripture invites us to first fear God than to trust them. What a perfect illustration. And let me give you the third one of these very quickly, related to the first two. Christianity, when we don't fear God, becomes a very watered down, theologically anemic religion that fails to proclaim the truth that actually changes people's life. We cheapen grace that the love of God is just Emotionalize. We neglect all forms of accountability. We don't want to talk about God's judgment, which Solomon talks about in the next verse. We'll talk about next week. We don't want to talk about the fact that God's will for our life is holiness and obedience to His unchanging Word. Churches that get away from a Word-centered approach and preaching and singing, whatever, you're going down an anemic road that doesn't produce lasting change. Now, in the last few minutes, I, I, wanted, I want you to help me with something. I want you to find three texts with me. We're just, going to look, we're just going to read them, make one comment, and move on. But as we end our time together, I want you to look at these. I want you to see them, okay? So, get your Bible out. If you put it away, get it on your phone, whatever. But I want you to find Psalm 130 with me for a moment. And as we conclude this, this little sermon, this short sermon on the fear of God, I want you to see what the fear of God is connected to. And it might very well be that when you look at the symptoms of your life, you don't don't have joy, you don't have peace, you don't have confidence in God and whatever you're struggling with, it might very well be that the root of this is you don't fear God. You fear all kinds of other stuff, you're anxious about all kinds of other stuff, but you don't fear God, primarily. Look at these texts, Psalm 130, hope that's what I said the first time. Psalm 130, look at verses 3 and 5. Verse 3 begins with a question If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer? You can talk. What's the answer? No one. I wrote it really big on my page. No one. No one can stand. Not you, not me, no one. But with you, there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I hope. Now, here's the point I drew from that little passage fear is the proper response to God's forgiveness, it drives us to him. To hope in his word. I mean, do you tremble before the fact that God forgave you of your sin? Or is it just kind of like God owed it to you? I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, if we don't understand the magnitude of our own sinfulness, and when we come back to that very first verse, who can stand? If God keeps track of my iniquities, who can stand? No one. It's only by God's forgiveness. Man, I ought to fear that God. I ought to tremble before Him, the God who can forgive me. Look at Psalm, turn a few pages, Psalm 145. I want you to see another one. We're just going to do two. Psalm 145, and I'm going to read verses 17 through verse 20. Psalm 145, verse 17, down through verse 20. Notice this text. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulf- look at this, we've been talking about this, He fulfills the desires of who? Of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. In other words, they should be afraid. They should be running the other way. But not as a believer. The point of this is the fear of God is the proper response to God's redemption. And it drives us not away from him, but it drives us to love him. That in Christ alone, I experience redemption from the destruction that those who reject Christ will experience. I ought to tremble before that. I ought to stand an overwhelming sense of godly, obedient fear falling before a holy, righteous God, just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me and love him in return. One more turn to 147 of Psalm, Psalm 147. Just one more. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read to kind of set the context of Psalm 147. I'm going to read some earlier verses in this Psalm and then draw your attention to verses 10 and 11. The Psalm says this, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. Now, there's a magnificent statement. He gives to all them their names. I can't remember my three children's names, let alone all the names of the stars. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Jump down to verse 10. He delight, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. Notice how fear is connected to hope and love and joy. The point is simply this fear is the proper response to God's healing, omniscience, power, and knowledge. When I understand God's power, it drives me to hope in what? in His steadfast love for me. So Solomon says, if you want to fulfill the purpose in your life, if you want your life to be one of purpose, fear God. Tremble before Him, understanding He is unparalleled to anything of this world. And next week, when I fear him, it will lead me to obedience. And there is the whole duty of man. What a wondrous place to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this text, this couple of words in your scripture that are there by divine inspiration. They're not there by accident. Lord, may we understand the distinction between sinful fear and obedient fear, that we would live trembling before you in a way that draws us to you, resting and trusting in your power, your knowledge, your love, your forgiveness. And Lord, may it lead us to the place that we would obey, not because we're like Adam running in fear and shame, but running towards you to find refuge and strength and mercy and grace and long-suffering, and forgiveness, and ultimately redemption. God, thank you for these verses of Scripture that speak, hopefully, to all of us and remind us of your greatness and your goodness. And Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray you would dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Hope you have a wonderful afternoon.